All right, so I'll be really brief in introducing this panel uh, to make sure we have plenty of time for uh, this terrific conversation. I'm Molly Brady. I'm a professor here in the law school. Um, and I'm delighted to be moderating this discussion of Rich Schrager's book I have here, City Power, Urban Governance in a Global Age. Uh, Rich is the Per Bowen Professor of Law and Joseph C. Carter Jr., Research Professor of Law at UVA Law School. And firsthand, I can say he's also a wonderful mentor, reader, teacher, and colleague to me um, and lots of us around here. Um, so offering comments on his book today in order are Michelle Wilde Anderson, who's a professor of law at Stanford Law School, uh, Sheila Foster, university professor and the Albert A. Walsh Professor of Real Estate, Land Use, and Property Law at Fordham University, and David Ambrosio, professor in the Department of Political Science and Urban and Public Affairs at the University of Louisville. Uh, fuller bios of each of the panelists are available in the program if you are interested. Um, just a word on format, each commentator is going to speak for about 15 minutes. Um, and after each one, Rich is going to offer a brief response. Um, we'll then open up the floor for additional questions and comments. And with that, um, I'll let Michelle take it away. Um, well, I'm so delighted to be here with you to celebrate this incredible book and incredible contribution to the field of urban politics and to um, the law of cities. Um, and I thought I would begin my remarks with a story. It actually comes from, from my book, but I think it illustrates, it's a book that I'm writing, which I, um, and Rich's book has taught me so much for that project. This um, story comes from Stockton, California, um, which is pretty close to where I live. Um, and Stockton, as you know, is a, or might know, is a city of several hundred thousand people. It was the um, biggest bankruptcy in the country until Detroit. Um, uh, moved past it. Um, and Stockton, if we cared about racial diversity, Stockton would be one of the, if we sort of cared about the racial diversity within single taxing jurisdictions, Stockton would be one of the jewels of the United States. It is one of the most racially diverse places in the country. It is the confluence of um, black sharecropper exiles from the south with California farm workers, with several waves of refugees with um, California's Reagan Republican, um, one of the Reagan Republican strongholds of the inner Central Valley. It's a fascinating um, city. And it is one of the post-industrial cities um, that I think are so, that are spoken to so well and so significantly in this book. Um, so I'll start the story with a news uh, broadcast from a local TV station from April 25th, 2014. And the news broadcast announced, a man who was shot outside a Stockton movie theater on Friday night has died. The shooting happened around 10 p.m. at the Regal Cinemas 16 on El Dorado Street. Now, the Regal Cinemas are right in downtown Stockton. They're part of something called the City Center, which has a sushi bar and a Cold Stone Creamery and um, some lunch places. You can sit out on this nice stone plaza in the sunshine um, uh, with your lunch. And just um, a couple of blocks away, you can find all of these other splashy new amenities, a baseball field, a yacht marina, um, a beautiful river walk, a hockey arena, um, and a hotel with a glamorous pool deck. Um, an opening night at the concert arena, um, which is called the Bob Hope Concert Arena, held a Neil Diamond concert. 
Um, and now Neil Diamond, as you might expect, is not cheap. And so this concert required a million dollars in performance fees. Um, but so too, it left residents in the majority, minority, very high poverty city pretty baffled. Who among us listens to Neil Diamond? <laughs> now all of these things were built between 2004 and 2008 by a city government with big dreams to make the city more attractive to private capital, to new residents. They advertised themselves as a Bay Area suburb, as a place where the exiles of the overheated Bay Area market could live. And these things were all lovely and quite livable. But they really boil down to that shooting that happened in, um, in the early days of the movie theater, which is really, who wants to linger at night in a place where people get shot? So apparently not enough people, because the movie theater is failing, the complex never managed to change the fact that at 5 p.m. every day in downtown Stockton, there is an urgent exit. The city empties and um, goes completely vacant at night. And today, when I go to Stockton on research trips, I can stay in that lovely hotel for 83 bucks a night. Um, and the private investment that city officials hoped would flow from these downtown improvements simply never materialized. Fast forward just a few years later and definitely connected to all these physical developments in the city when it ended up in bankruptcy court in 2012, unable to keep up with the bond debt that had financed these developments, the judge put it very well. He said, quote, Stockton committed its general fund to back long-term bonds to finance development projects based on an overly sanguine, if you build it, they will come mentality. They did not come. The lesson from Stockton, which sadly has been learned the um, hard way by too many cities for too many years, I'm sure we could crowdsource a list of 200 projects like the one I just described from this audience, um, is that you cannot expect new buildings, river walks, and arenas to erase concentrated poverty. Redevelopment is not an anti-poverty agenda. There is no simple salvation in it. Indeed, the higher likelihood is that a troubled social environment will trouble even the best physical redevelopment. Let Them Eat Cake worked no better for Marie Antoinette than it did for the Yacht Harbor in one of America's poorest cities. So don't get me wrong, redevelopment can do important things. It can um, clear and decontaminate blighted, sullied land. It can allow formerly industrial cities, as Rich describes well in his book, it can allow formerly industrial cities to sort of enter a new era of the economy in which they need the land uh, decontaminated. Um, it can create and build new homes. It can build industrial facilities um, where people might make things and earn a living. Um, and it could provide places for people to um, have fun and lighten up. Um, and all of these changes may be sorely needed. Um, in some cities, those kinds of redevelopments have helped reinforce and I use this word super carefully, and it is utterly consistent with Rich's book, they help reinforce underlying progress in the city. 
When you redevelop a city and, and improve the built environment in a city, it can reinforce a positive trajectory that the city is already on. It can work with and cycle with a positive momentum in the city economy. But it cannot um, uh, single-handedly transform a city. Um, so, uh, and it's really easy to see when conditions are really deteriorated, it's so easy to see why local officials reach for these big projects. They reach for them for jobs, they reach for them for ribbon cuttings, they reach for them for some sign of progress. This is the thing that says we are changing, we are entering the 21st century, we are not trapped in our past, we are moving forward. Um, and they really, I think, you know, often have very good intentions. Um, but at the end of the day, including literally at night, the built environment is only as safe as the air, or, sorry, is only as safe and healthy as the people that use it. And a huge central function, indeed I think, and I think Rich thinks, the central function of local governments has to be to make their people safe and healthy. Not some future population of people that might or might not show up over the rainbow, but their people right now, how to make them safe and healthy. And if you can wrap your arms around the community that you actually have and deliver basic services to that population, then when you build that movie theater or you build that river walk, it will come, the people will come. You will defy the judge's um, prediction. Um, I think uh, you know we've seen it time and time again that redevelopment can build an arena. This is true most recently in Camden, but it can't keep the sports team in it. Redevelopment can redevelop a park. It can make a park lovely with a brand new playground. If the drug dealers occupy that playground, the children will not come. Over and over, we cannot lead the built. We cannot lead exclusively with the built environment. It can make property usable, but it cannot make it used. And the amazing thing is that now that Stockton is so thoroughly broke. It really, and so close to the bone on even the most rudimentary profile of public services, its leaders have been forced to fundamentally reconsider their role. And I'm happy to convey a really great piece of news from last Tuesday's election, which is that Stockton elected a, um, a young African a young African-American mayor who has been part of a city council movement in Stockton and a movement alongside social services to, um, to recognize that chasing growth is not a game Stockton can afford to play and it is not a game that Stockton can ever win. And that new mayor is, is perhaps best known for joining in with um, trauma counselors, family counselors, social workers from across the city in um, joining in President Obama's My Brother's Keeper project. And Stockton has announced a new set, which will last the transition in the administrations. There was very little federal money that was going to come with it anyway. Um, but uh, the My Brother's Keeper's commitments for Stockton are about the people who live there. They are about literacy benchmarks, graduation benchmarks. Um, they recognize that 21st century employability requires post-secondary education and job training. 
There's just no way around it. And especially because, as you all probably know, we are heading into a whole new wave of automation that is going to strip a whole layer of existing middle class jobs. The 21st century employability is going to require more than high school. And these visionaries focus on letting children pass through children, childhood and adolescence without witnessing or experiencing a violent crime. Something that we understand is absolutely fundamental to education outcomes and even fundamental to the neurological wiring of a child's brain across those tender years. So of course this is very hard, slow work, but those things are the heart and soul of anti-poverty work and that's what poor cities are and that's what poor cities need. Um, and I think that's really the heart of the argument um, uh, that I wanna make today and that I think really flows so strongly from Rich's book that basic services should not be limited by local government's ability to pay for them. Basic local services, including and beyond public education, are essential to ensure individual opportunity and to keep people safe. And when they work well, local governments help to prevent tragedies like intergenerational unemployment. And when they don't, they seal the economic fate that is now so closely associated with our childhood zip code. Rich's book is a tour de force explanation of why this is true. It's an explanation of why local governments are unfit to chase economic growth. He asks why local, what local governments are authorized to do and what are they capable of doing. And in that, reading it is like popping open the hood of a car to, from a great, with a great teacher behind you to learn why and how it works as it does. It helps to explain all of these things um, that I've seen across the country in my research and that so many of us know from our, the places we've lived and cared about. And it draws together many of the most hopeful stories from our thriving places. Everything from the living wage movements and bargains over land use permits um, to favor labor and the environment. And for me, above all, it really this book really stands for three linked propositions that I want to summarize and I hope you will all take with you from this event. The first is about urban resurgence, the term that he uses, which is that where cities have come back, where we are seeing the return to the city, which as you all probably know is very uneven across the country, but where we are seeing this urban um, return, it was not because brilliant local leaders managed themselves with foresight out of hard times. It was not because they figured out some kind of playbook that can be exported and applied somewhere else. It's actually very hard to know why exactly some cities come back and some don't. But I am quite uh, convinced from Rich's work and everything that I've learned myself that it comes from some messy, spontaneous combination of things. The history of that place, the drivers and strivers in the diffuse social networks in that place, um, uh, civically engaged universities and anchor institutions, dumb luck, and so many other things. This is not a, a playbook for growth. And indeed, when cities, this is proposition number two that is so 
crystal clear from his work, when cities chase the tail of economic development, they spend tremendous amounts of money for returns that are almost an embarrassment in most cases. And that funding could have been spent on the residents in that place. It could have been spent on basic services. And I mean basic services beyond policing. I mean basic services including the coping, the sort of human and emotional coping that a community needs when it has gone through um, a, a tremendous period of job losses, or in Stockton's case, the um, uh, blow of the foreclosure crisis and violent crime. They just need to focus on local people, basic services, and infrastructure. They need to focus on what they have always done best and own that, and own that their job is to keep those little unsexy governments running. And Flint is, a, is such a prime example of this, something as simple as the water department and the state management of that water department um, falling off its job in a way that is, um, that is just unbelievably damaging to the long-term health of that community. It will make the job later so much harder. So this is fundamentally a call for a recommitment to basic services. Um, and last, the third piece of this book is that, or the third thing I want to highlight from it, is that when we focus on building human capital and supporting social welfare, um, it's actually not that expensive, not that destruct, not destructive of economic activity, and maybe even quite successful. You might almost wonder if there is a playbook for urban recovery in here. Uh, and it is a set of regulatory policies and efforts to organize people around, um, around their community, around the livability of their wages, and around the kinds of projects that they want to see locally. Um, it is an, an agenda that is about stimulating the local economy, but through thousands of diverse actors who are all earning and spending a paycheck, and not through single industries that are supposed to fly into town and bring with them their, um, their facilities. So in closing, I would just say we're here at a Jane Jacobs um, convening. Um, after a federal election that, in my opinion, just punched the American poor in the gut, whatever else has been claimed about the Rust Belt. And therefore, it feels very appropriate to me today to talk about social movements. And this, to me, is a social movement book, because this is a very strong link in the chain of efforts that you would need to write a new agenda for an anti-poverty program in local governments. And because we stack our poor, whether they are in rural areas or dying entering suburbs or cities, because we stack our poor and we often stack them in places that are border to border poor, we definitely need a new plan. And this book is really one of those links that helps to form this larger um, chain of people um, from the the most ordinary public employees to the elected officials, um, to, uh, to all of you. Um, it will teach you and motivate you and empower you. And I think it is of and for our times. So thank you. <laughs>
I feel like a, a bar mitzvah. <laughs> so, like, rich is, uh, Should we raise that, our glasses? <laughs> that's the last time anybody said such nice things. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's right. Um, Michelle, thank you so much. Your, your work has been incredibly influential on mine. Um, you should read her book when it comes out. It's going to be terrific. Um, uh, and you've captured uh, uh, many of the central claims in the book. I will just say the, the following, which is to tie it a little closer to Jane Jacobs, which is this book starts with a chapter basically about uh, Jane Jacobs and uh, theories of the growth and decline of cities. And uh, uh, Jacobs often uh, uh, never solved them, to, to my mind, never solved the mystery of economic growth and decline, and none of us have. Um, but what she did say was some cities will be up and some will be down, and there will be cycles. And you, she, she offered some suggestions on how to renew those kinds of cycles in cities, but she didn't have definitive notions of that, and she certainly didn't think that cities would always be uh, up <clears throat> or always be down. And that's a, uh, Detroit's a great example of that. Stockton's a great example of that. Um, our predictive powers on where a city is going to be in 50 years are terrible. So in 1950, we saw some charts yesterday about the population of, of Detroit. It was about 2 million, now it's 700,000. In 1950, everybody thought Detroit was going to be the biggest city in the country, the most robust. In, in the early 1970s, everybody thought that New York City would be in terrible decline, would have cycled down into the uh, proverbial urban toilet. And that hasn't happened. So, it, But one of the things we do, um, because we forget, I think, is we, th we then make policy prescriptions based on a theory of economic growth and decline that is incomplete, to say the least, and mysterious in many ways. Um, so we, th we think that the answer, say, to cities is to chase amenities, Michelle mentioned that, or chase jobs, or chase growth in some other way, and there are lots of different ways, but amenity chasing and, and job chasing are the two main, main ones, and that costs money, and that's a, that's a redistribution. Often it's a redistribution from immobile capital or immobile people to mobile people. That is the creative class or yuppies or the middle class or white people or corporations. And that transfer from, from, of capital from immobile people to mobile people is not seen as a redistribution because we think of redistribution as rich to poor, but of course it is. Um, it's justified on the grounds that you need to jumpstart your economy, you need to do various other things. Um, what, what, what city power is, is, is both skeptical of that capacity, which is what Michelle mentioned, and then optimistic about the capacity for cities to do other things, which they're told they can't do. For example, adopt a minimum wage. They're told they can't do that. If they do that, all their businesses will flee. All their people will flee. If you raise taxes, all your people will flee. Now, there are some cities that are in terrible straits uh, economically, but it's not because their taxes are so high, right? That's always a symptom. The, the, the differential in tax rates between cities and suburbs has not reduced. That's not what has the, caused the urban resurgence. But if you had listened to certain kinds of economists mostly, and 
certain kinds of policymakers, they would have said, in order for New York City to come back from the 70s or for Detroit to come back or any of these places, they would have had to improve their schools and they would have lowered their taxes so they compete with the suburbs. Neither of those things actually happened. So the urban resurgence is not a result of those things. I don't have the answers to the urban resurgence, as Michelle pointed out, but that, again, we can go back to Jacobs and say some cities are up and some cities are down. So I, uh, in the United States, we have a booster, a city booster mindset, and that happened in the 19th century, and cities attract the railroads, and they attracted right, investment, and they defaulted in many cases. Why? Because they were, again, chasing development. And it turns out, and again, this is a lesson from Jacobs, and now developed more so by uh, uh, work in the new economic geography and, and, and areas like that, um, it's not clear that any of that is a policy that will generate uh, any goals. So, Michelle's right. I say go back to basics. Do what you can do. You will need some resources to do that. Stockton will need help from the state and the federal government. There's no question about that. Whether that help is forthcoming is, a, is another question. But it's Sacramento's fine. Right, right. <laughs> Maybe help will come from Sacramento. And, and that's what you need to do. So great. Thank you for this book, Rich. Um, I thought I would comment on the book by answering the question of the symposium using his book, Can Cities Govern? Um, which is the title of this panel. And in his book, um, Rich gives a brilliant analysis uh, to this question, and it's not a simple answer to the question. Um, and so I want to use his book to answer, can cities govern, um, how and under what circumstances can they govern, and where can they govern? Is, are they just confined to the local? Uh, and then just to quibble with a couple things, because there's not hardly anything I disagree with in the book, um, it really is a tour de force. Um, so okay, first, can cities govern? What constraints do cities operate under when they try to govern? Uh, I mean, and so Rich would say, uh, or the short answer would be yes, clearly cities can and do govern. And the exercise of their governing authority is at time quite broad and at other times quite constrained. Uh, the picture he paints of city power is nuanced and rich, uh, describing a complicated picture of legal and political influence at various levels of policy making and governance. I just want to highlight three areas where Rich identifies a tension in cities' ability to govern. And in doing so, I think brings a lot of clarity to the precarious position in which uh, cities find themselves when they do want to step out and govern in a bold way. Um, as he rightly points out, they are inclined to do on a host of policy matters, including economic redistribution. So first, he talks about the tension between um, really interestingly, the city as what he calls an administrative unit. The city is a simply an instrumentality of the state and the power that the state gives it and can actually take away as well via preemption or from overruling its actions. So on the one hand, the city has an administrative unit, and on the other hand, the city has a mini-sovereign, uh, a politically autonomous uh, body and site of 
a very robust political participation, especially with respect to how it spends its money, so Michelle just talked about this, in certain areas of uh, social services, but also land use and development. So, the, so, so one tension is between the city as an administrative unit and the city as a mini-sovereign. Another uh, tension is between what he calls legal localism and political localism, uh, localism. That is, the fact that cities are formally um, and legally relegated to a very narrow range of local matters, in particular land use, um, 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 but that's not necessarily uh, limiting its political power and influence. And I'll come back to this, this is a very important point, um, which is to say that um, cities are weak legally because they're constrained by what the states have, but politically they can flex their muscles in very interesting way, even as he says mayors tend to be very weak political uh, figures outside of the city. And finally, as in his prior work and uh, we've just had this conversation. I think Rich is at his most interesting in describing the fraught relationship between cities and mobile or footloose capital. Um, and he, in this book, he makes the really insightful point that while cities are quite constrained when they're acting as a regulator of capital, that is, they can't favor their own uh, um, uh, uh, firms or citizens over outsiders, they're much freer when they act in their spending or proprietary capacity. And Michelle just made this point to spend the money as it wishes, including favoring its own uh, citizens and their health. Um, and so what this means in practice is that the city cannot act in protectionist ways, obviously, but it can decide to better take care of its citizens' health and its citizens' welfare. Okay, so cities can govern. How can they govern given the constraints, um, but also their potential political power? Um, so Rich gives a number of examples of the ways in which cities can and do govern in ways that belie the conventional wisdom of limited city power. One of those ways is around economic inequality and asserting its role in engaging in economic redistribution. And he gives examples of uh, cities passing minimum wage laws, the regulation of incoming development in new ways through the creation of project-specific labor laws, and through community benefit agreements. Um, he argues that Although we understand cities as chasing mobile capital and marginalizing the role of citizens in doing so, at the same time, we see cities willing to redistribute that capital within. Um, and this is a striking example of city boldness and power, um, given that redistributive policies are a political non-starter at the federal and the state level. And indeed, this fact alone, the fact that state and federal governments are not interested in pursuing these policies, highlights policy spaces where cities can be at their most powerful. But of course, such bold policy moves are always risky, politically and legally. And he points out when federal and state officials share authority, so um, when they share policymaking authority, um, um, you know, cities can step into spaces and really get slapped down. And, and the most striking example of this is when uh, San Francisco's mayor um, allowed same-sex marriages and was basically stopped by the state court and the political backlash at the national level. So one way to understand uh, a city's power and influence, uh, political, not legal, as he points out, is where cities engage in policy experiments that are political non-starters at the state level, um, where governance, or the federal level, where governance is often stymied by partnership or political capture. Although 
Rich makes this point very powerfully. One quibble I have is um, that he seems to be most interested in these interventions in economic policy, particularly redistributed. And as bold as cities have been in the economic realm, it's worth pointing out the ways in which cities have stepped into other barren policy spaces, particularly when the federal government has not done so. So two examples that stand out for me as a New Yorker um, is health policy and climate policy. So in 2006, um, New York City banned trans fat in the city. Um, and, um, and that's been a, um, a ban that's lasted, although a f there was also a soda ban that failed, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but it strikes me that health policy, really um, something that cities have not necessarily engaged in, and it's been for the federal government, uh, uh, federal government to do, has been one of those areas. Climate policy. Cities like New York City many years ago took the lead on climate policy, both mitigation and adaptation, at a time when the federal government had pulled out of the International Kyoto Agreement and showed very little interest, under Bush in particular, in legislative or administrative policies, and in fact consistently rejected them that would mitigate our emissions of greenhouse gases. In both cases, city leadership, governance, um, arguably forced or pushed progress forward at higher levels of government. So for instance, based on the success of the health ban, the FDA adopted a similar ban um, that, now, that has now given the food industry until 2018 to eliminate trans fats. Um, and on climate, I would say the uh, Mayor Bloomberg, the mayor of uh, New York City at the time, uh, was um, instrumental in, citing, in uh, starting the C40 climate uh, or Cities Climate Leadership Group, a network of the world's mega cities taking action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And it credits itself, and many agree, that it paved the way to the Paris Agreement, to COP21. So, as such, perhaps cities have a policy forcing role, not just an experimental role, um, in addition to being again, important sites of policy experimentation on issues not just of economic redistribution, but a broader vision of social welfare, health, environment, client, and policy. Um, so all that to say is that I fear that the reader walks away from your book thinking that, you know, city powers and economic policy where I think it's much broader. Okay, finally, and to pick up on the last point, where can the city government? For a book whose title is City Power, Urban Governance in a Global Age, I was a little surprised at how little there was in the book about the possibility of cities exercising their power or even governing on an international stage. Um, this may seem an odd place to focus, uh, given how relatively powerless cities seem to be as a structural matter in relation to their own nations, right? Um, why would they want to play on the international level, right, uh, where they also have to battle with a host of other international institutions? But at the end of the book, you observe on page uh, 255, policy problems, quote unquote, are becoming increasingly global and outstrip the scale required for true democratic self-government. And you also say that the global corporation requires a global state to regulate it, but that, but that global state is by definition undemocratic. Meanwhile, you say, the nation state does not seem to have the resources to address this basic source of citizens' contemporary disconsent or a discontent. So you ask, does the city have the resources, basically, to intervene to address these concerns? And you conclude, perhaps. And, and then you kind of leave it there, um, opining that the relative decline of nation states as the central you know, a regulator of, of economic life might situate cities better 
to deliver or construct a new relationship between transnational capital and democracy. So we know that cities across the globe already interact with each other through transnational networks of cities and local government scholars like Frug um, and Barron have said that they've become in a sense independent international actors, certainly sharing information. And as in the climate change arena that I've talked about, these, these uh, global networks do facilitate some policy autonomy to cities and these cities are in turn able to shape international legal norms. So my question is whether there is any possibility of strengthening this global collective action of cities into a stronger form of international policy making or governments that goes even beyond networks. As Rich knows, I'm involved as an advisory member in a global experiment called the Global Parliament of Mayors, the brainchild of political scientist Ben Barber. In the first meeting of this body with, over, uh, with all the city networks and 70 mayors from around the world convened this past fall in The Hague. And the idea is this question that you leave open at the end of your book. Can a body establish a new nonpartisan global governance platform that empowers mayors and cities to deliver cross-border solutions to global uh, challenges such as inequality, refugee crises, and climate change. Um, and so the question I have for Rich is whether this is an experiment doomed to failure, given the constraints on cities, even more so on cities outside the US, or whether um, you might see the fact that most of the people in the world live in cities, and cities are at the front line in these problems, and therefore have more in, you know, more influence uh, to bear on these que uh, questions can somehow collectively act together despite their national constraints. Bravo, Richard. <laughs> uh, thank you, Sheila. The, the, uh, your work on this area and others is, is really provocative, inspirational. Terrific, and thank you for those comments. Um, I'll say, let me say two quick things. Um, uh, I do emphasize, and, and I think this is uh, an important point, that there's a difference between the formal authority that cities have and their uh, potential political influence. And I emphasize the latter over the former. And the reason I do that is, um, in the United States, and this is really a US-centered book, um, cities actually have a fair amount of formal authority as say compared to some of their European counterparts where there are more centralized governance systems. Um, and, but it turns out maybe those cities in those centralized governance systems have more political power and more influence on the central bureaucracies. Um, that seems certainly true of France, for example, as a centra highly centralized government. If you just looked from the outside, you wouldn't notice that Paris exercised an enormous amount of power within those bureaucracies. In the United States, we have this formal division, this categorical division of authority between the feds, the states, and the locals that sometimes looks like lots of a highly decentralized system, but it turns out uh, what is really engaged in is what I call selective localism, which is when uh, a city does something that the state doesn't like, and now it, it'll be probably with, that the feds don't like. Um, it's very easy, particularly the states can very easily override that. So you see that with minimum wage laws, anti-discrimination laws. Uh, this happened in, with Charlotte, Indiana. Uh, uh, Indiana overrode its cities anti-discrimination laws, North Carolina overrode its cities, anti-discrimination laws. So, it's, so, they, so cities are quite weak, and part of the 
purpose of the book is to tell you why state-based federalism is bad for cities uh, using the U.S. as the, as the, as the, but they can be politically stronger, although I don't think they are now. They were during the New Deal. There were political networks that were more powerful. Um, um, and I don't mean just to talk about economic policy, but the, I guess the reason that the emphasis is because, um, again, the conventional wisdom has been that, that cities can't do redistribution from rich to poor. That has to be done on the state or federal level. And that's, that's a common view by, um, uh, by progressive policymakers, too. They say if you're going to do tax and transfer, uh, policy, it's got to be done across across the nation. And they said the same thing about the minimum wage. You've got to adopt a minimum wage across the nation or at least across the state. And that actually isn't, doesn't seem to be the case. There's, um, but the other things they can do are these things. And New York City's great. They tried congestion pricing and soda bans and um, uh, um, environmental stuff. And, but guess what? Even New York City, which has a fair amount of home rule as a formal matter, and is a powerful city, obviously, economically and politically, had to go through Cuomo, also of the same party, uh, to get anything done. You had to go through the state legislature. So if New York City, with the same party at the state and uh, local level, and a very powerful city in other ways, and formal powers that are pretty extensive, can't actually do some very basic things um, without the state's authority, that's... That's the weak city. So this is called city power, but a lot of the book is how the cities are weak in these kind of formal ways. But what it's doing is saying, well, embrace your power in other ways. And one of the things you'd have to do is do a, a political movement. So that gets to the international. I, I, I think there might be, a, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm often skeptical of these kinds of settings um, because in part because sometimes they're driven by what I would call growth machine interests. Like they don't separate themselves from the corporate mobile capital that is um, driving some of this stuff. So they bring themselves in and then they bring companies and corporations in and say, all right, how do we improve? And that's fine. But in fact, it's sort of part of a growth agenda at the end of the day. It's not part of an anti-poverty agenda. Um, uh, it can be part of a power agenda in terms of, say, climate change or something. And I love this idea of the policy f uh, forcing role. Like, you guys, they can do it, and then let's see. And then you get a, a seat at the table. So, so for policymaking, maybe that's, that's a great way to do it. Um, uh, uh, and uh, I, I would advocate that on the national level, certainly, that cities try to create net networks and then exercise political power. So on the international level it seems plausible too. Well thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be here and to meet so many new wonderful people. Sister Son, yeah, you have a wonderful daddy. <laughs> um, that's what I'll say. That's it, that's it, that's it. Thank you very much. How do you know? <laughs> I had a long conversation. Oh, good. Um, last night at dinner, uh, we were chatting with us on the panel and we were planning our uh, panel for today. And um, he 
mentioned I'm getting to say three things about the book. Tour de force, which she already showed up. Michelle said it first. <laughs> masterful, which I'll go ahead and say. And then I forget what the third one was, but um, I thought She's I took notes. But <laughs> magisterial, maybe, is what I came up with. Brilliant, actually. Brilliant. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, right, now that that's out of the way, we got that uh, taken care of. Um, I wanted to. Um, I wanted to um, say that this is a very, uh, seriously, this is a very uh, impressive book, ambitious in scope. And because it's ambitious and because, I'm sorry, because it begins with a, um, uh, it began with a series of relatively discreet essays, um, which I've been fortunate enough to be reading now for what feels like, I guess, close to 10 years. the uh, there, there's a there's a lot of ideas here. There's a lot of juggling of ideas. In some ways, he's trying to to mix metaphors, thread a needle uh, on a lot of these issues. Um, and and as a result, as Sheila said, this is um, there are some tensions in the book. Uh, some tensions about where he, uh, Rich stands on particular sort of big ideas in, in, in the area where I work, which is kind of normative political theory and, and, and public policy. Uh, I'm going to point to what I think will amount to six of these tensions, although I'm going to elaborate on a few more, uh, more than others, um, and then uh, hopefully get to, uh, if time remains, some of the uh, politics here. I'm a, um, a politics person. I don't like to use the word political science. Uh, that's so why it's nice spending more time in Europe, but I'm a politics person by training. Um, one question, one you know, issue, one potential tension is, what is the nature of city agency? Um, you've heard a lot about, and Rich has talked about, and other panelists have talked about, um, the argument that what cities do doesn't really matter that much. Uh, it's, you know, at one point in the book, and Richard mentioned this today, it is, it is about luck, and it is about some mysterious forces. And the, the, the function this place in the book, uh, quite effectively, I would add, is that it, it says, hey, if it isn't what you do matters that much, then you, 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 it opens up the scale of what you can, or the, the door of what you can um, do. Those of you who aren't trained in this literature, there's a famous book called City Limits, uh, by a guy called Paul Peterson that kind of formed, came out uh, 35 years ago, was written, yeah, came out 35 years ago now, but sort of formed this sort of framework that cities can't do very much. So, so the tension is, on one hand, you can't do very much. On the other hand, there's a lot of things that, that and this has already come up, that, that, um, that Rich wants cities to be doing. So on one hand, if what you're doing doesn't really matter, you can do, you know, why do we need to be doing anything at all? Or, or what is the justification for doing anything at all? Someone can read this book and say, well, it's not going to have any much of an impact. It's all these mysterious forces, if you think about this in epistemological terms. Um, so, so, so to me, that's a, that's a, that's a tension in the, the book. The second has to do with Rich's stance on, on something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and that is decentralization. Sometimes I read this book, you know, how much, how much power is to devolve to local levels? Sometimes, and I was first attracted to Rich's work because he's very sympathetic 
to decentralization. Um, unlike a lot of uh, conventional liberals who are very weary of decentralization, are worried about rights being involved, and you know they're worried about they think that the, the national government is more uh, progressive in its powers. And, and although you know until last Tuesday, I guess, or two Tuesdays ago. Um, but 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 I would argue that there there is a sort of longstanding tradition, especially in America, where um, we have uh, uh, the particular history that, that we have. Um, so there's a sense that there's very pro-decentralization when good things, and I use that in quotes, happen, uh, when disadvantaged people are helped, but um, anti-decentralization when, say, suburb suburbs exclude people because of so-called exclusionary zoning and things like that. So, you know, it seems to be on both sides of this question. My, my, my sense is something to think about is maybe we need to take the good with the bad. Maybe if we want decentralization, if we want Republican government, if we want uh, the kind of things that come from an engaged citizenry at a decentralized level, that we have to be open to uh, sometimes they're going to do things that we don't particularly um, like. This is, uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, channeling Michael Sandel, uh, Christopher Lash, and some others that have written about uh, these things. Um, related to decentralization is a third uh, tension, and that is sometimes he seems to buy into the kind of no boundaries uh, um, and there's a number of legal scholars that have written about um, this. And in my field, there are a number of people we call regionalists or new regionalists um, that have written about this. Um, you know, what we need is this large regional polity, and that's going to solve things. It's going to create more justice, which I think is just frankly wrong, but wrong empirically and wrong normatively. But that's a longer story. Um, but, but the tension here is if, if, we, if, we, if we really are on that side of the argument, um, and, and the people who blurbed this book are, are, are some of the people I've been um, uh, jostling, jostling with for uh, 10 years now. Todd Swanstrom, uh, uh, Myron Orfield, to a certain extent Jerry Frug, although he's a sort of more interesting case. Um, they essentially, you know, think boundaries are the enemy. Well, boundaries is what creates decentralization. Boundaries is what uh, uh, creates um, localism. The fourth tension is about market processes and, and, and the sort of economist view of the world. On one hand, he's very sort of pro-regulation. He has a discussion, lots of discussions, but one discussion about how you can do what he calls land use unionism, where you can kind of use land, regulatory land use powers to promote um, unionism. Um, but on the other hand, when suburbs do this, it is seen as bad. It is seen as essentially blocking, and most liberals are, are on both sides of this question, essentially blocking market processes that are going to be, that are going to liberate people. Um, they seem to buy into something that I think that's very dangerous, and that is this economistic notion of what we want is a frictionalist kind of polity where capital and people can kind of sort themselves out without these things like boundaries. This is the thing that got Hillary Clinton in trouble when she talked about the kind of uh, Western uh, Hemisphere having a free uh, free trade zone um, when she was talking to uh, uh, what we call in my field neoliberals, which is a term that I know might not um, uh, resonate as much here. So I, I would I would argue that um, this sort of idea of growth being the solving problems. Um, that uh, imagine a polity without much 
regulation, where you know, if you read someone like Ed Glazer or these kinds of people, they, this is all you know, usually bad kinds of things that are going to lead to um, bad uh, things. But I would argue that kind of polity is not one we'd like to live in. Uh, has all kinds of undesirable um, elements. And much of this book is about how we use regulatory powers that are not pro sort of free market or not um, uh, unfettered market to get um, good things. And this isn't, and it, this isn't just a case of um, suburbs doing these kinds of things. I mean, a lot of, if you look at what uh, uh, de Blasio seems to be wanting to do in New York, and that is grow, 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 what we call in, in social science the growth machine uh, as being the solution. Uh, the same thing happens in the suburban uh, polities. Is like the solution, the reason why, in their view, we have metropolitan inequalities is because the, um, there are, there are uh, these regulatory policies that suburbs are doing that are blocking the kind of natural market processes. And if these would all just work themselves out, then a lot of people would be better off. I would argue that that is wrong. I, I, I have no love for suburban exclusion, but I think that what we need to do is fight it in a different way. It's not about going and knocking down the boundaries. It's about building up your own um, local economy and keeping, um, building essentially the progressive cities that Rich talks about in the book. A fifth, um, a fifth tension is something that also has been mentioned, and that is, what is the main function of, of cities? He's got a lot about, let's just do basic services. Let's just provide these sorts of things. On the other hand, to me, the most interesting parts of the book are when cities are going to do innovative things on, with their regulatory powers, with redistribution, with, um, and he, 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 he signals this a few times. He doesn't go as far as uh, down the road as, as uh, some of the things that uh, I've thought about, but, but they can do not just these terrible economic development policies that, that uh, other people have talked about, but rather they can do a, a variety of alternative economic development policies. It's not throwing economic development itself out, but doing right kinds of things, like the kind of co-ops they're building in Cleveland around the anchor industries, uh, uh, anchor institutions, excuse me. Um, uh, to, to sort of, you know, create a difference, make a difference there. And there's a variety of what we call the solidarity economy, uh, ways to reorder the market and state, ways to collectivize capital that our economic development are about people taking control of their own lives and building alternative economic institutions and challenging from a decentralized, localized way uh, capitalism in a way that builds, I think, a sm Republican uh, small r polity. Um, a sixth um, tension, and this is also something I'll go on about uh, a bit, is how do places matter? Um, much of this literature that I try to push back against and that um, which pushes back against some, but also seems, in other places, seems to buy into, and that is that it's all, it's all a spatial problem. You know, and it looks like a spatial problem, right? This neighborhood is poor. If you're born here, it's going to affect your life chances. Um, myself and some others have been thinking about, maybe this isn't about space at all, or it's about space a lot less than they say it is about space. They say, meaning uh, people who think, I'm talking about people like Samson, uh, 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 the, the social scientists that you may or may not know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is that there are um, 
people who say that it's all about your zip code, I, you know, mentioned, and things like that. Perhaps something to think about, maybe that the spatial inequalities are simply the workings out of broader inequalities in the, in, in the economy that get spatialized. Think about Europe. Why does Europe not have these massive spatial differences like, like, uh, like America has? Well, because it doesn't have as much raw inequality to begin with. So what you want to go at is not simply by moving these people here and this people there and doing this, but going at the core of that inequality. And the core of that inequality is not about space, but it's about two other things. It's about race, of course, and it's about capitalism or it's about the way that we organize the, the, the economy. Now, race is, I would argue that you see this because you know you had these neighborhoods, all those are terrible neighborhoods, people have to get out of there, and now these neighborhoods have million dollar condos, right, or more, you know, five million dollar condos, whatever. We see this great erosion. We see that those same problems that we were talking about in central cities in the 70s and 80s are now in the, inner, in, in the suburbs. So these people have succeeded in their agenda, certain people have moved to the suburbs, and what happens is a major, we, we have the same problems over and over and over again, whether it's in Ferguson, or suburbs of South Side of Chicago, or 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 whatever. So 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 maybe there's something deeper about race. Maybe there's something deeper about. Think about these neighborhoods that were uh, stigmatized now with gentrification. They're very desirable, but but a different kind of people have moved in. Those people have been pushed out of, say, Chicago, moved to the the South Side, and and then that that's the issue. So so maybe maybe it's not space. Now, why does this fit in with the book? If it's in the book, because if it's about space, then it really points strongly to centralizing power, to creating a kind of regional government, creating you know, states telling locals what to do, breaking up what we call metropolitan fragmentation. But, uh, and, 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 and the biggest one um, is whether, um, how much power to have at the at the federal uh, at the federal level? Um, uh, you know, more and more, more and more power. So, um, so, so I think it's I think it's about uh, rather than thinking about space, it's about it's about race. And by, by race, I, I don't have time to go into it, but I, I don't I don't mean that we need to deal with integration or we need to move people around. I mean I mean going at white supremacy in a serious way, including embedded deep normative cultural practices. I, I've thought a lot about uh, meritocracy and how that feeds into this. And then also going at uh, capitalism through, as I said, decentralized ownership kinds of things. So um, all of these tensions add up to whether I, I, whether I read Rich as a, 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 a liberal, and I mean that in a, in a kind of philosophical way, but also mean that in a New Deal uh, you know, civil rights, New Deal, great society kind of liberalism that had its heyday a half century ago, or whether, and some of the times you read the book and that's where you are, or whether he moves to something that I think that's emerging, and that is uh, a decentralist Republican. He talks a lot about Brandeis, who was very much against this curse of bigness, um, 
uh, or, you know, a Republican, decentralist, radical Democrat, kind of, you know, critiquing these kinds of things. People like Lash, Wendell Berry, who is uh, from uh, close to where I'm from, if you know who he is. I've written a lot with someone called uh, Gar Alpovitz. All different ways of going at um, 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 liberalism. Um, the last thing I want to say is what does this mean politically? We had a, I don't know if, if, if you saw the news, but we had a presidential election uh, 10 days ago or whatever it is, was now. Um, and I want to I wanna think, and I want, Rich's book really kind of begins to point to this in some ways, but doesn't in the other ways. But is there a politics here as dangerous as the new administration uh, and Donald Trump is, is going to be? And I believe that, the, you know, and just watching the news yesterday, I believe that we could be in for some really scary and dangerous stuff. So I'm not talking necessarily about Trump as much as the politics that brought him there. Is there a politics here that is against, um, uh, that, is, that, is, that is against the mobility of capital and the mobility of labor, that is about localism, about rootedness, about the opportunity to um, build a different kind of challenge to this sort of neoliberalism that can bring together the right and the left uh, in a way. Wendell Berry, again, um, the, the, the relatively well-known uh, Kentucky farmer and poet and political philosopher, uh, says there are really two parties. It's not the Republicans and Democrats. There's the party of community and the party of globalization. And I would argue that both... Uh, Clinton and the Democrats and, and certainly the mainstream Republicans at least are the party of globalization, is there a potential for a party of community that can be built out of the devastation of 40 years of neoliberal globalization that has ruined the kind of place where I came from in Ohio, a deindustrialized place of Ohio, to, to connect that up with the kind of same things that Rich is talking about in cities that's also pushing back against this politics of, of um, uh, essentially neoliberaliza uh, neoliberalization and this politics of globalization. So let me um, go ahead and stop there. Uh, David, that was that was terrific, and um, it's why I brought you here to ask these questions. This is exactly right. Um, just terrific stuff. Um, I've been reading David's work for a while. Um, the solidarity economy idea is, is an awesome one, and I I, I recommend it to you. Um, I'm going to start with the political question first, and and just say part of the the book isn't. There are two parts of the books. What are cities capable of and why would we want them to govern? And one of the answers to the second question is because um, our current nation-state democratic institutions seem to be dissatisfying to um, uh, the populace. And I think the Brexit vote uh, in Europe and the Trump vote in the United States is some sign that these democracy deficits uh, or the, the standard post-war liberalism or neo and transitioning to a neoliberalism is is not working uh for uh and and the global economy is not working for lots of people if you believe that economic 
issues are at the forefront. I also think there's race at the forefront for sure, but that may be tracking this other larger problem. So I do say at the end of the book, maybe cities are the, maybe what we need to do is think about what kinds of local institutions need to be rebuilt, reconstructed, rethought about, particularly from a, uh, say a progressive or liberal perspective in which uh, the savior has been the federal government. There's been a lot of emphasis on federal programs. Um, and I'm a localist, uh, except when it's bad. <laughs> That doesn't mean there aren't bad policies that are coming out of the local, but I'm a generally, at least as a, a theoretical philosophical matter side, uh, I'm a, um, I want to recover a progressive decentralization. And that's a hard thing. It existed. Uh, and Louis Brandeis, as you mentioned, is one of the, the, the folks who are, were a part of that. That includes, and Brandeis's philosophy was an economic philosophy, in the same way that Jane Jacobs has an economic philosophy deep, uh, 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 that drives her work. Um, Brandeis thought that, uh, any, uh, that big institutions, whether they be on the private side or the public side, were... Uh, uh, um, dangerous and um, um, uh, bad for democracy. Um, that the curse of bigness for Brandeis, which is the name of his, his famous, one of his famous works or collections of papers, uh, is that just scale is damaging to the notion of true citizenship and um, democratic participation. And maybe he was right. And remember, Brandeis was a progressive, but he voted on the Supreme Court to strike down elements of the New Deal. And the New Deal made peace with bigness in Brandeis's view. Brandeis would tell his clerks, get out of Washington, go back home to your local communities. That's where the real work needs to be done. He lost that fight. Now, he also had an economic program. So one of the things I write about, not in the book, but in other places, the anti-chain store movement, right, which is, was the anti-globalization movement of the 1920s and 30s. Um, that was a reactionary movement in many ways, but it also had some elements of progressive decentralization. Brandeis wrote uh, a number of opinions in chain store tax cases. This is where the state or locality would tax chain stores more than uh, local stores in order to benefit local uh, producers. Um, um, and uh, the court at the time was uh, destroying boundaries in this way. They say, we are a national market. You can't exclude national market actors to create a, 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 um, an American common market, essentially, constitutionally. And Brandeis would write, well, no, I don't think, I think local communities can decide to favor one kind of business in terms of scale over another in order to advance the interests of economic self-sufficiency and, and citizenship. We don't want to turn every citizen into a clerk in a store. Um, and the, global, the Walmart is the, is the example now. In, in, in the 1920s and 30s, it was A&P, which had taken over and, was, and ha is, is still historically the, the biggest chain store ever. Uh, um, so, um, so that, answer, I think, answers a little bit about, well, who is Schrager? What is he? And part of Schrager's problem is that um, I studied uh, local government law with Jerry Frug, who's a crit, uh, critical legal studies, which is a kind of um, infused by 
a structural critique of the capitalist system. It's Marxian in, in, in tone. It, it's skeptical of, of legal structures that um, seem to favor market actors over, uh, over other kinds of actors. And yet, I'm, th that has a skeptical and a deconstructive portion to it, and the critique of critical legal studies was that it didn't have a constructive part. And in fact, when you read this book, a lot of the chapters are critical. <laughs> and then Schrager puts in some hopeful stuff at the end, like, yeah, they can do it. And, and in the middle, okay, that's <laughs> fair enough, right? And those chapters, and, and I can tell what people, sort of people's orientation, because they'll say, oh, the core of this book is those two middle chapters, right, where he says what they can do, and it's hopeful, and wow, a new politics. And they, there's not as much focus. Then somebody says, no, the core of the book is, you know, the fact that the urban resurgence has no good reason, right, and you can't do a damn thing, and why are you bothering? So I think people, I think this is a personality. I go back and forth. I'm an optimist and a pessimist, and a, it drives my family a little crazy, I guess. So, um, so that's a bit of an answer to that. Um, uh, uh, I do think we are in a period where the, uh, the standard, say, again, post-New Deal uh, policy mechanisms are, are dis again, dissatisfying, and that may result in, in, in um, um, the reaction to those uh, exhibiting themselves in bad ways. Um, and the question is whether you can get to a, um, a more communitarian or is there an alternative public, um, public philosophy that will be responsive to that. And the part of the book is to say that's why we need city power. That's where maybe this could get done. The nation state's not doing it. We're urbanizing. The cities are powerful. They're are a central place for this. And this was just... Uh, Dahl wrote this in the 60s, he was, he's, or the uh, early 70s, he said, cities are the place where all these issues come to bear, and that's where the work should be done, and it has a Brandeisian flavor um, to it. And so, the other thing I would say, and it doesn't answer all of this, and I, wanna, I, I don't want to talk too long, um, because these are fabulous, these are the tensions <laughs> in the book. Um, one of my claims about centralization and decentralization, about federalism, is that we often talk about, well, where should power reside? Should it power in the central government, the state governments, or the local governments? Who should do health care? Who should do minimum wage? Who should do trans fats? Who should do environmental law? Um, but there's a public-private side, which we don't talk about as much, and you raised this a little bit, which is the, I say, federalism is also a proxy for the city business relationship. That is the market, there's a, the, the, the market side of this is another axis. So there's power going this way, up and down, federal, state, local, and then there's power between the private sector and the public sector, which is our market, market versus state kind of difference. And those actually are working in tandem, and the book tries to describe this. And so um, we're really wrestling with um, boundaries and borders in terms of uh, the private-public distinction. And so one of the things is, should cities run businesses? Should they actually enter into the market? Why is the market seen as sacrosanct? 
And again, this goes a little bit back to Brandeis, which is um, he worried about the curse of bigness, um, the, the accumulation of capital in large-scale entities, and what they would do to the political side. And you could do a countervailing power kind of story. We had talked about this a little bit, which is, well, you need the national government to counter, the, a national public government to counter the power of private, private capital. I'm not sure that's right, and part of the purpose of this book is to say, no, actually, the cities can do some of this, some of this work. got started a little late, so I think we probably have about 20 minutes for questions. Um, all right, I'm going to start in the back. Yeah, hi. Uh, you guys talk a lot about the theory of cities and sort of the moral theory of cities, too. So I was curious, what do you guys see uh, as an emerging new social contract in their reform and also an emerging sense of activity? So I think all you guys are Can you just say it a little louder? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just curious because we've talked a lot about like emerging political and moral theories on the United States and what that might look like. So I'm curious in particular how that pertains to emerging new ideas and sort of contact, and obviously you saw deindustrialization and kind of corroding of the traditional capital or uh, corporate welfare. So how are we renegotiating social contracts and reform, and also how are we thinking more broadly about that? So, <laughs> right. Um, so I think uh, probably all of us have something to say about this. But um, um, and I'll just talk about my work and also your work on the solidarity economy. And my work is trying to kind of rethink what you know cities can do in a decentralized fashion around this framework that I talk about as the commons. Right to think about collaborative wealth and. Uh, Collaboration um, as a new kind of uh, social contract to uh, to so um, we saw in the movie yesterday that Jacob said, you know, in order for the city you know to be for everybody, it has to be made by everyone, and it's kind of that concept is how can we think about structures in which, you know, the people that live there and the if we think about the city as a common resource, which I do, uh, before the city there was the land. Um, and then we populated and created community and laws, you know, came on top of that. If we go back to the idea that it's a resource in which, you know, that should be shared, I'm not going, and I'm not talking about the sharing economy, which has um, been kind of captured by a neoliberal uh, kind of logic um, uh, with Uber and Airbnb, but another kind of sharing that is really permeates the way in which local governments. Um, create the city and recreate the city in the way that we, that we create our na uh, neighborhoods and recreate them. And it's very much connected to the solidarity economy. So to me, that's one emerging conversation that's happening all over the world. Um, and it's linked to, I think, the dissatisfaction, the Brexit, and the kind of Trump vote. I think that it's not working. The system's not working. Most people are in cities. That's where we're going to build our neighborhoods and our economies. And I think there's a real kind of cry out to rebuild structures and institutions that bring us together in inclusive, collaborative ways. So that's what I'm working on, and that's what I see as an emerging paradigm. 
Uh, I agree fully with all of that. Of course you do. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to add. Okay. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say briefly, I think that there, I think we do need to converge on a new so social contract with greater equity commitments embedded in that. And to me, at the local level, one of the features of that contract is moving beyond law enforcement. Mm -hmm. It is not to build the, I mean, as, Folks may or may not know, especially in poor cities, local governments spend two-thirds or more of their budgets on police and fire, um, which is incredibly important. And actually, a lot of the places that I write about have ratcheted down police and fire spending in ways that are very concerning, sort of all the way at the other end of the spectrum. But when the apparatus of local government is primarily emergency intervention, when it is probably too late to prevent the harm and may invo involve downstream losses for families and community members um, through incarceration policy, the, um, the relationship between the local government and its people is put under great strain, and that is the understatement of our times. Um, and, uh, and so as we think about what these basic services are, I think we have to be thinking about a broader profile of services in which we do the thing that globalization requires us to do, which is retool new generations, current generations for the economy that is here and the economy that is coming. That's what you know, local governments can do and must do. And I think that's so embodied in Rich's book. It's, you know, the Stockton version of it is that if you chase the businesses, but your people don't have the skills to work in them, you know, what are you doing? You're just chasing other residents. You're chasing outsiders. And so when you actually show up for your own residents, you have to sort of meet their needs. And law enforcement just can't be the only way to do that. It can't be our mental health interface. It can't be our way of, of answering poverty and, and so forth. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. Let me, let me just, uh, just quickly pick up on that. One thing that um, Rich and I had a little conversation about this that I thought about yesterday, but I think, and this is, it's hard, it's sensitive, it requires a lot of sensitivity, but I think that to understand this, I think we need to move away from essentially what I would call, and this is kind of, it seemed bizarre to say, the, the, the equality of opportunity agenda, you know, which involves, you know, education at the core, but a variety of other things, a variety of social services, and, 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 and really, really, you know, creates a kind of meritocracy where we create this system where one or two people are going to sort of rise and we're all going to feel good about ourselves because, you know, as opposed to things that are more community oriented. Moving away from that agenda is going to have costs. They're going to be maybe that kid who could have been this, it became that. But I think on balance, and this is an old debate, I know it goes back uh, at least 120 years and probably longer. On balance, that's the way we're going to begin to help places like Cleveland. That's the way that we're going to be able to help certain kinds of places, is to create the kind of economic institutions that aren't about um, um, creating quality of opportunity so we can have meritocratic rise of a few, but rather about building more community-oriented institutions. And there are trade-offs there. You know, you might say, oh, we'll do both. We can do it all. We're going to do, you know, and, and, and anyone who says that is, is, I think, being naive. So there are trade-offs, and that's, the, I think, um, the kind of policy debate that we need to have. Yeah, I would just say that um, 
We haven't had a very robust social contract for a while. I mean, when we, one of the things Americans do is we just let the cities that are in decline just go into decline. I mean, we throw money at them sometimes and then we blame them, right? So the story about Detroit is well, it's a terribly run place and that was a symptom, not a cause. Um, that's a bizarre thing to allow um, a city of 700,000 or whatever it is, or Camden or any of these places to go into decline that looks like the developing world to some degree. So we just have a, we sort of have a basic, and part of the book actually it says, says this, which is we have a competitive mindset about what cities are supposed to do. They're supposed to compete with each other for, for, for people and for jobs. And we think of them as businesses. Again, this goes back to Jane Jacobs, who said they're not businesses, they're totally different. They're spatial economies. So talking about them as competitors is so weird. It's like saying the economy as a whole is a competitor. It's not. It's, 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 a, um, uh, it's a phenomena. It's a, and, and I borrow a lot from Jacobs in terms of an ecological phenomena. We don't say our cells are competing, right? We don't talk about it in that term. In, in, in organic things don't compete in that way. So we have this com competition mindset, and if you fail the competition, that just is exhibited by the fact that you're poor and you have poor people and those people should leave because that will discipline you as a city to do better. And that's a mistake. And so that's been deeply, we just do not have solidarity across, certainly not across race, which we've found out pretty strongly in the last eight years and certainly not across class. I like that point a lot, and, and part of the, um, I think in the, in the governmental side, we sort of have our silos, 
Um, and part of the problem with categorical federalism, as we might call it in the law school, is where your authority is here and your authority is here, and the reality is much more messy and com complicated. And that's why I do draw a, a distinction between legal localism and political localism. Decentralization can mean a lot of things. It can mean the authority to do a set of things that the state can't do or the feds can't do. It also might just mean um, you have a lot of relationships up, up and down the line of government officials, and we have to look at why certain government officials are acting in a certain way. One of the critiques I have of state-based federalism in the United States is that by putting a middle tier of government between the cities and the federal government, you've in interposed a bunch of competitor political officials, and they are very uh, adept at... Um, selecting what they like and what they don't like among the what what the locals do and that subordinates the local you don't have to have that kind of we're sort of stuck with it in the United States but you don't have to have that kind of intergovernmental competition on the on the fluidity across public private I think that's exactly right so the public private distinction or the line between the market and the state is a constructed one in my estimation. We've constructed it in a certain way in the United States. They constructed differently in, in Europe. Um, and we should, one of the things, and this comes from Jerry Frug's work mostly, is um, we don't have to have that line drawn where it is. Cities can, cities and local governments can do things that the market does. But we have a pretty strong uh, principle of market primacy. Um, it's an ideology. It's not a, it's not a fact of nature. Um, uh, and we just want to be reminded of that all the time. And the, what I don't want that to mean is, oh, we should do public-private partnerships. There was some mention of that yesterday, and I think those are worrisome because what they often mean is privatization of city services. I'm mostly opposed to that kind of move. So just a quick note to that. I mean, so we also have to think beyond these categories or within the categories of public and private. In fact, there are two publics, at least. There's the, the local government as a public authority, and then there's the unorganized public, you know, the folks in communities and all the institutions, and then even on the private side. Um, it's hard to kind of, right, I mean, think in, um, in simplistic terms, because um, there are emerging, uh, let's call them, you know, social innovators in cities and in, in various places. Uh, that are doing creative uh, things, um, it, and they're not the same as kind of, you know, multinational companies or even large. So when we start to kind of disaggregate, right, those categories, I think some interesting possibilities come to bear um, on how we can kind of think about, um, you know, recreating and redeveloping cities and our neighborhoods and our communities. Great. Um, so our time is kind of short, so I'm just going to collect a couple questions. So we'll start there. Yeah, fantastic, all of you. Thank you so much for such a rich conversation. Real quick question. Given the, what I think I understand to be the, um, some of the, the demographics of the election, it seems that there, and this is not necessarily new, but there seems to be a pretty significant divide between urban centers and rural centers. And thinking about the future, about the power of cities and the possibility of governance, what do any of you see? Um, is there a scenario in which cities become, city-rural divide, city-suburban divide become part of a, a new cultural war, just a 
Put it on I'll uh, just collect another question there. Um, so I'm really interested in kind of like the tension between devolution and now preemption in a lot of different areas. Um, just as simply as possible, what, uh, given some of your comments yesterday, but what are the possibilities, or what are Birmingham's chances in the courts against the city? So Alabama passed a minimum wage law. Collect one more, and then we'll give the panel a chance to respond. So go ahead. sort of kidding I don't, I don't have an answer um, what, what do we do I mean I think I think I think in terms of also the question on stopping preemption and I believe even the other question about the urban rural divide it, it all comes down to building an, a new kind of politics politics that gets us out of this cultural divide gets us out of this red blue divide gets us out of this democratic republican divide I think that Bernie was uh, a movement toward that I think that elements of Trump, you know, and there's something else there. I think that there are all kinds of other sort of cross currents. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know, I believe strongly that we need another political party. I don't think it's the Green Party, certainly not the Libertarian Party, God forbid. Uh, it, it is, um, uh, uh, but it is this party of community somehow defined that can come together around a number of common things so that courts can't because the locals become stronger politically, as Rich talks about how cities are maybe weak legally but strong politically. They become stronger politically in the culture, in the ideology, in the things. This is not we not do. We build on the localism that's in the United States that gets, that gets hammered by liberals. They hate it. That's what creates, you know, they want this rationalized, centralized power. The exact thing that Jane Jacobs was against. I, I sort of Anyway, um, so, so I just wrote this very long 20,000-word thing about this that it's just swirling around my head. But, but, but th 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 that is what we need to push. And Jacobs is really good here because she tells us what's wrong with this centralization, what's wrong with this rationalization, why we need this sort of you know, localism and local creativity. And Eleanor Ostrom is another good, and I need to read more, and Sheila's done some things on this, but and there are a lot of, there's a lot of thinkers on the decentralized left. Rich gets into this a lot in the book. Um, but, but anyway, creating a politics around that, which I know is not easy. You're probably not going to get it from Donald Trump, although there might be some elements there. You're certainly not going to get it from Hillary Clinton and the mainstream Democrats, or frankly, Mitch McConnell and the mainstream Republicans. But, but is there this emerging politics of community that is about pushing back against globalization and the mobility of capital and labor that it seems to. And, 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 and whether that comes to fore, I, I, I have no idea, but that, that is sort of 
Um, my, that, and I see it as incipient in some ways, but that is sort of my hope. But I agree, I'm really grasping probably at straws here. But that's the only, that is the only way out. That is, if we don't do that, then we're, it's going to be barbarism, I think. You know, we have two choices, as Marx says. And, 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 and I don't know if it's socialism the way he thought about it, but it's something else or barbarism. And we're starting to see that barbarism. That is, unless there can be a politics, a populist decentralized politics of the left or of at least a left-right coalition, then you're going to get more of Trump. You know, I've lived in Kentucky now for almost 25 years, and I'm telling you, it matters where you live because you can see, you see the world in, in a different way. And, I, and I, I do not predict this coming, I must admit, like everyone else, um, but, but, but I believe that, that there's, there's something. It's Brexit, it's here, it's something happening. And, and, and unless there can be an alternative, you're gonna get UKIP, you're gonna get Le Pen, you're going to get the party in, um, uh, uh, Holland, you know, you're going to get these sorts of things, and we're going to get Trump. That is the central imperative, and it is, and it is a serious, dangerous imperative that needs to be countered with, a, with an alternative movement. So I'll just say something quickly, and then I guess Rob, um, as a closing word, I'm a little surprised to hear that from a guy who just, like, deconstructed the whole spatial uh, kind of that it matters where you live it, it, because I mean I, so I don't buy broad categories of urban rural and if you look at the numbers that are coming out of this election a number of the folks who voted for Trump in the rural areas voted for Obama twice and so you know space is not destiny yeah. in that sense um, there's something much larger going on and I think we've all talked about it it's the kind of social contract having failed the economic you know, needing a new economic. And yes, the folks that are in rural areas, if you look at agglomeration economics and everything Rich talks about, you know, chasing mobile um, uh, capital, the, the people that cities are attracting to kind of build their, you know, metropolitan areas are the people who are benefiting from our economic environment. And it has literally left people on the side. So there's nothing kind of essential about those categories, urban and rural, and I think it's gotta be connected to the larger Right, how this all plays out economically. I'm um, just quickly on the preemption as a legal matter. Preemption is pretty clear cut. I mean, maybe Rich would disagree. I do think, however, politically, and so this distinction that he draws between legal and political power is key for me. That politically, we'll see. So now cities are coming out as sanctuary cities, right, as a kind of pushback to what they see coming on the immigration front. That will be a really interesting test of preemption, and also the political power of cities, right? Um, so while they may fail down the line in the courts on preemption, is there enough power that cities and some of these mayors have to push back, right, and to have that stick in the political arena? I don't know, but that's something that's going to play out over time in very interesting ways. Um, well, I, I, um, this question about dissatisfaction with. Um, with government is so critical. Josh, I think it's one of the real questions that we have to wrestle with, and it explains, I think, why you get Obama voters that flip over to Trump. I think um, it's amazing. I've, over 2016, I've done tons of interviews in a lot of deindustrial places, whether they're very urban um, central cities or very rural, and it's amazing over and over and over again, people say the same thing, which is that they want to be self-sufficient. 
That's the American way. That's what people want. They want their governments to be self-sufficient and they want their families to be self-sufficient. That means no bailouts from, you know, central campus or whatever, <laughs> central capital and so forth. Um, and so they're asking what is blocking us from that? And I think they're looking for answers and Trump gave a set of really easy answers. Palin did too, actually. So if we combine kind of Palin with Trump, you get a set of really um, salient answers. Environmental policy, locking rural areas out of the patrimony of extractive industry. That is their lifeline to self-sufficiency. There's wealth in this ground and I cannot get it because the federal government is keeping me from it. That's why she's on the list for interior. And then you get you know, immigration, trade, um, regulation in some kind of generic sense. And so I think you know, that's on the rural side, on the urban side, a tremendous awareness of racial discrimination, the aftermath of the foreclosure crisis, which revealed such predatory behavior, sort of the ongoing failure of governments to protect people in their homes, their fundamental shelter, and their major method of wealth accumulation, because homeownership has always been told that if you can stay in your house, you can make it in this country. And then that just washes over people's um, shelter and their major economic asset. So everybody's looking for some reason why they can't make it. And I think, you know, what we're really not being honest about is that the real problem is that the reason people can't be self-sufficient is that we didn't show up for the job of retooling our economy across deindustrialization. De so if we're going to have, you know, old growth in Oregon locked down and, you know, gold mines here and there locked down and have rules on fracking, then, you know, we have got to get people into an alternative economy. That's the 21st century economy. That's the knowledge economy. And so that's what I think, you know, but that took me three sentences to say and, <laughs> you know, is a more complex thing that requires a lot of institutions of training and investment, human capital investment that we don't have right now. So I think it is, um, we have to be honest about the fact that we have a whole generational transition behind us that we that was fundamentally incomplete and we are heading into a whole new wave of it through all of the automation of these mainstream middle class jobs trucking warehousing and logistics and um, which by the way you know most uh, tons of the warehousing jobs that fuel the middle class right now are already fully robotic and food service which is a little bit farther down the line, but those three big waves of automation are about to come and just hit them again. And so unless we're honest about needing to sort of show our people up for the 21st century economy, the way the economists tell us that we have to do, um, then uh, we'll keep grasping at whatever enemy, whatever 10-year plan, whatever um, uh, we can do. And, so across it all, I think not only do we have to be honest with the public about what's going to be required of them in terms of uh, retraining and so forth, but, um, but we need a, a poor people's movement in this country because there's a lot of poor people. I encourage all of you to watch the income parade. There are various versions of this. It's an old exercise um, that was done, but it's an actual depiction of the height of Americans on a time lapse by our income. And the swelling of the ranks of the American poor is just extraordinary and there's and so that's my politics answer is that you have to have a really serious 
uh, recognition of the size of that um, public, the public part of the public, not the government side. And, uh, and you have to show up for it with some plans. And Rich has some plans in the middle of the book because I'm an optimist. Right. <laughs> Except this automation thing. You know, I mean, that's what comes from working in Silicon Valley. I mean, it is that. But, but all, all great growth way, jobs are 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 very low skilled jobs, right? Like home health care and and all of these kinds of things. Nineteen in the twenty growth areas, the biggest we don't even require probably anything but on the job training. I don't see. I think this is a dead end. This we need to train. This is what Robert Rice was talking about. We're going to turn this all into symbolic analysts or or Richard Florida, we're all gonna be creative class or whatever. This is politically, this is the kind of thing that pisses these people off in Ohio. I'm telling you, if you keep down that road, we're in serious trouble. Let's maybe Good give Rich a last word. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. We're in serious trouble. The answer is city power. Get it. Get it in your local bookstore now. <laughs> Don't buy it on Amazon, although they are, you know, then I'll see my rankings go up and down, and that'll be very important to me. Um, I think that is, um, I d actually don't think uh, these dislocations are new in the following sense. Post-industrialization, a similar, uh, very powerful dislocations. The progressive movement was a response to those dislocations. Um, 70s decline, there was a response to those dislocations of a sort. It hasn't been as, I, I think, as effective as the Progressive Era or the New Deal Era. Um, I think there are serious economic dislocations that, and com uh, compounded by our race problem, obviously, um, uh, which, um, again, I think we have to think about devolutionary solutions to that's again as 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 david points out is might be an anathema to uh, the existing democratic party or the existing liberals and we might have to take the good with the bad with that kind of form of localism so that's what that's an urgency that's the urgency of of this and my claims in the book urbanization is the economic engine that's jane jacobs just to bring her back in she she did not believe uh, quite clearly that nation states were the appropriate economic unit to an analyze any economic phenomenon. They were just jurisdictional, artificial jurisdictions. But cities were real economic units. And that's what I'm trying to press in, in, the, in this book. Um, and, and that's where the future, if there is a future, if there is a plan, it's got to be urban power, urban political power, urban cross international and national, um, because maybe you can get some cross-racial solidarity in those places. If you don't have unionization, maybe at least you get urban, urban political, right? So that's the, that's the thing. Maybe that's the program, which is cities, 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 cities. And I will lead it for you all. <laughs> Michelle will. Michelle.